This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. I want to get right to our next guest. Uh, Mike Alkire is with us, President and CEO of the Healthcare Improvement and Supply Chain Company. It trades on the NASDAQ. It's called Premier, and he is back with us on the phone uh, from Dallas. Uh, Mike, nice to have you back with us. You guys are front and center when it comes to the healthcare and COVID supply chain. What does it look like right now? And first of all, how are you? <laughs> Do we have Mike? Uh, no. So, uh, Okay, we've got you. How are you? Hey, good, Carol and Tim. Thanks for having me back. So just a quick update on the vaccine distribution numbers. Um, Right now, uh, we're doing about 2.3 million vaccines per day. Uh, That compares to about 540,000 in the first six weeks of the pandemic. So we're catching up. I think the most important part of that number is that uh, we're on track to exceed the Biden's administration goal of hitting 150 million vaccinations in the first 100 days. That goal was a little low, though, right? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I think when people were thinking about it when he said it, it seemed a little bit high but, and, and seemed aspirational. But I will tell you today, uh, we, we seem to be on track to surpass it. What about when it comes to PPE right now? The story, if we think back to a year ago, was do not buy masks if you're a consumer, not just because you need to reserve them for uh, healthcare professionals and there was a worldwide shortage, but also because we didn't know that this was the type of thing that was so easily transmittable uh, through breathing. Where are we when it comes to PPE, not just for, for us, but for healthcare professionals right now? What does the supply chain look like? Yeah, just num- uh, I guess the, the first thing we've learned with this the whole issue with COVID as it relates to PPE is that we've got to diversify uh, our portfolio of manufacturing just like you would hedge against risk if you had an investment portfolio. And there was such an overdependence on China and other Southeast uh, Asian organizations or countries. Um, and, and I think that, you know, today where we are, uh, Premier has taken steps along with a number of others to, to try to create more resiliency in that supply chain, uh, where we've made investments along with our healthcare systems and the domestic production of, of face masks, uh, made uh, investments in the production of isolation gowns, uh, and we're also doing similar stuff with uh, exam gloves and uh, generic uh, drugs, because we think that obviously those, uh, uh, those supply chains are have a, a lack of resiliency to them. So we want to create a, a bit more resiliency and obviously... Uh, create more diversification in those supply chains. Yeah, how easy is that to do? Especially when it's, you know, we've all kind of farmed everything out to, uh, in many ways, a lot of emerging markets. So it's a great question. Look, we've been talking about this for the last 10 years. It's been a significant issue on our minds. Um, And and it is tougher now, obviously, to do it, but we were able very, very quickly to stand up exam gloves, or I'm sorry, uh, face masks and isolation gowns we have a partner that's going to be able to stand up exam gloves probably domestically in the next 18 months. Yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you, while, while it's difficult, we have to do it. Because uh, in 2020, the only economy that grew was China. 
at 6.5%, and the U.S. economy shrank during the pandemic at almost 4%. So I think that there's been this great shift of wealth from the U.S. to obviously to China, and we've got to rectify that by creating a more resilient supply chain. Easier said than done, though. It's absolutely easier said than done, but we've got to start the hard work now. And, and by the way, I heard a little bit of your interview at the, the prior folks on um, what the administration's doing from, you know, really what are the next steps they're thinking about through taxes and those yeah. kinds of things. I think the administration has to be a lot more proactive to supporting domestic manufacturing of a lot of these critical items as well, making it more more friendly to actually manufacture here in the States. So, Mike, safe to say, just got 25 seconds left here. You would be yep. opposed to increasing the corporate tax rate? You know, I'm going to stay out of the corporate tax rate, <laughs> but what I what I would like to say is that we are very interested in the administration making it more friendly for, country, for the U.S. to domestically manufacture products. Understood. Hey, Mike, listen, thank you so much and for going with the flow today, especially as we had uh, to step into the president for his uh, update on the uh, COVID relief package. All right, Mike, thank you so much. Mike Elkire, he's president and chief executive officer at Premier on the phone in Dallas. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So right now, the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week features a deep dive into equality. It's all part of our enhanced and, you know, kind of a reset we're doing on our equality vertical here at Bloomberg. It also coincides with the Bloomberg Equality Summit uh, this week. We've covered several of the stories in the magazine on our air in the past week or so, but one more we wanted to bring you. And this, Tim, is about the new data that exposes precisely how white and male some U.S. companies are. Yeah, it's an interactive feature, so I highly encourage you to check it out on the website when you are done listening to us. Uh, Joel Weber is editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Jeff Green is managing diversity reporter at Bloomberg News. Joel, talk a little bit about the presentation of this, because that is a big part of the story here. Yeah, and, and to be clear, uh, the the magazine and, and me deserve very little credit for this one. <laughs> Same uh, with me. Yeah, we, we, we tried to make the, the team tried to make the, the interactive be, you know, the, the glory here. And, and we were able to take a slice of this and bring it into print because I, we thought it was such an important topic. Um, and, and that is really like the heart of this thing was to actually like look at corporate America and and it does, as you would expect, it is very white, but to actually be Bloomberg and put data behind that and actually attempt to show progress was really what the this project was all about. So, so Jeff, talk to us about how you went about getting this data, what it revealed and, and what you're starting to watch as this is an ongoing project. Yeah, I mean, I think the really, the really key thing here is that when we first did this last year, 25 companies were uh, were agreeing to show us this data, which is not required to be released publicly. In fact, the Supreme Court has made it very clear they can't be compelled to do it, so it has to be voluntary. And, and so in this time around, we have 37, with another 30 promising yet this year to show. So the among the S&P 100, the 100 largest companies in the U.S., a majority, a significant majority, by the end of this year will be sharing this data that they have been keeping private for decades. So, I mean, that's almost more interesting than what it's showing, which is kind of what we know, but in a way that now makes them much more accountable to it. Well, talk about this, uh, the EEO1 form, because that's where some of this data come from, right? Right. And this is very important for people to understand, because there's been there were a lot of people said, why are you being such a stickler? Why are you saying EEO1 or nothing? Well, what happens is every year all companies with more than 100 employees 
well, except during COVID, they've been delayed, but they will be doing it again basically next month, have to report the racial and gender breakdown of their workforce mm-hmm. in detail. And, and there's a, it's very, you know, very instructive as how to do it. So even if it's not shared publicly, there is an aggregate database of the entire workforce for the United States that, that, that we can see. And there's no such thing, other, there's no other source for this kind of information. So when a company gives us their individual form, we can compare them against their industry. We can compare them against the country. We can do things that you can't do with what people just throw up on their diversity page and say, this is what we're showing you. So. Well, I always feel like the devil's in the details. The deeper you, you really dive into numbers, you really get a much truer picture. And it's really cool. Like, as Tim mentioned, it's interactive. So you can put in Dow, Costco, Facebook, uh, NVIDIA, and really get a, a good handle on how they're doing. Overall, though, when we do take that big, broad look, Jeff, how are companies doing? What are the numbers? Well, I mean, it's kind of where we know they, they say they are, but in a, in a much more detailed way. And it also just kind of shows how much diversity right now is sort of focused on um, Asian employees tend to be overrepresented in terms of where, they, where companies shift. If they're not, a lot of the companies that have given us their data actually are underrepresented in terms of white workers, but where they shift to is um, in Asian workers, especially tech, and Hispanic and black workers, the, 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 I guess the poorer employees are not faring as well. There's a few exceptions where you have companies that, that are uh, maybe in the consumer space. Um, you look at McDonald's and Starbucks and have managed to move some of their employees from, from the workforce into the, into the management ranks. But it's, it's, it really kind of shows, especially if you, if you look at it all as a big snapshot, which you can do with one of the graphics, kind of where everything falls out. There's very few companies that are um, overrepresented or even represented in terms of black employees, for example. Well, and that's interesting, Jeff, because it, and it makes me kind of read between the lines here, because just in, in the wake of uh, George Floyd, social unrest, like it's almost like the, the companies, and these are the biggest companies in corporate America, now recognize that they basically have to put this out in the open and actually like confront it and not shy away from it. So is that is what kind of tone are you have you been able to pick up on from the companies just in terms of their willingness to finally cooperate? Yeah, I think there's a very much a tone of like, you know, okay, this doesn't look good, but it's better than being like cited as among the no's that won't share. Obviously, some companies are still willing to, you know, stand by. They don't think this is a good measure. They have lots of reasons why they don't want to show this to us. But I think ultimately, the, you know, sort of the, the momentum is against them now. And companies are basically saying transparency is part of the, is basically the cost of entry now to show that you're, you're serious about this. Where a year or two ago, um, the, the focus was on gender, which is a lot easier to show because it's one measure. This is a lot more complicated, and um, you know, asking people to present this in a way that you can compare to other companies is, is key now. Uh, hence why we have this tool, and it's something that we'll mm-hmm. continue to develop as we go forward. Um, Jeff, we kept you busy in the issue. I also want to talk about the back page that you also wrote, um, <laughs> which was about uh, the diversity ho- officer hiring spree. It's basically like within corporate America, they know they have this problem. They're trying to address it. What what job if you're if you want to be an executive in corporate America right now? What's the best way to to get that to get hired? Yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of uh, companies hiring chief diversity officers for the first time, and and also kind of 
refreshing what their, their approach to it, which is kind of part and parcel with this. People want to show they're showing their data, they're more willing to share, and they also want to show some sort of tangible evidence that they're trying to do something. I mean, the risk is that they'll hire a person and not put the resources behind it and not see the results and then sort of say, see, I told you so. Um, we tried and it, you know, nothing changed, which is kind of where the, the pressure is now is to actually tie these executives and all executives to you know, outcomes. And so you're, you're seeing a lot of companies bring in the, the, their first chief diversity officer, but they're now reporting to the CEO as opposed to maybe through HR in a couple right. levels. Yeah, it's definitely been upped. Um, listen, those are uh, the both stories, just really, really smart and full of lots of information. It's in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Jeff Green, thank you so much. Of Bloomberg News, along with Jill Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So we've been talking about this. This is among our most read on the Bloomberg. And once we get into it, you are going to totally know why it's among the most read. It's about Goldman Sachs. It's about Goldman's modern CEO, David Solomon. And it covers everything, Tim, from empty offices to island getaways. Even with a stop in the Hamptons <laughs> along yes. the way. Sri Natarajan is finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from New York. Sri, I'm so glad I get to talk to you again about this story. We spoke on Quick Take earlier today. Um, look, what do you think is the juiciest detail from uh, what you learned about Goldman Sachs over the last year? <laughs> Tim, thanks. It's always, uh, it's always good to talk to you, whether that's twice or uh, more times in a day. And always great to speak with you, Carol. Thank you. And... I'm just being nice because I'm hoping when you get your own jet, you take us along on your ride. <laughs> yeah, well, I will, I will. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, on Goldman, honestly, I think the bigger picture is what's really important here. You have a firm that is doing, by all accounts, really, really well. The stock is at an all-time high. It, it's obviously a Wall Street-focused operation. It's one of the most premier investment banks out It is the premier investment bank out there. Great trading performance, great banking performance in part aided by the windfall from the pandemic that has helped so many other uh, big banks with their Wall Street operation, then why is it that when everything is supposedly good, there is still so much grumbling internally? And, 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 and that's, that's the question that we've tried to explore here. There's obviously some level of frustration with the CEO's leadership style. You've seen senior level defections. And at a time when there are numerous lucrative opportunities for successful Goldman executives, outside of the banking space and many of them seem to be taking up on that opportunity and there is without a doubt the, the underlying theme of uh, and it's something that affects Goldman but also every other large bank as we think about a wind down to the pandemic hopeful wind down to the pandemic uh, we're also trying to figure out what the new normal will look like how much flexibility will banks provide and that's a key question because that will play a big role in the kind of talent you can attract. So every company has to wrestle with it. And that has also been a source of tension inside Goldman Sachs because of what appears to be a hard line stance of its CEO, David Solomon. So, okay, so many different places we could go. But first of all, I kind of, you know, put a note to myself, uh, let's just start with the jet. <laughs> because is that normal? I feel like, Shri, if you go pre-financial crisis, a lot of corporations had their own private jet. It was the norm. I don't think we would finger point or anything. It was just the way CEOs got around. Is that the case for Wall Street? Was it that way? And has it not been that way? And so it's kind of a bit of an anomaly for Goldman? 
I think it's an extremely fair point to make, Carol. Uh, jets by themselves are not an anomaly on, on Wall Street. An executive's jet might be seen as normal, in fact. But Goldman Sachs long made a point of not buying one, not having its own private jet, because it was worried that the extravagance would invite uh, public scorn. And even those who have it, it would be hard to sort of find cases where they've used it extensively for personal trips. And uh, Goldman's only had jets for a few months now. And uh, from what we have been able to see in the records we've seen, it seems uh, half of those trips have been these weekend getaways. But then you also have to juxtapose that with what is happening in the broader world right now. You have uh, a firm whose CEO has access to the corporate asset to be able to escape to these getaways, while at the same time, his subordinates and the public at large are still dealing with the rigors of pandemic life. That brings a whole level of strain. And when you know that your boss has access to these getaways and at the same time wants you back in the city, wants you back at the desk because he believes that is what will keep innovation going and that is what will make sure that the firm continues to thrive, there is obviously a bit of a Right. a level of friction and that messaging mismatch has to be addressed listen that tension you get into so well in this story we can't go through it all and it is really a must read as we said it is among our most read on the bloomberg so i'll put it out on twitter and highly recommend everybody go to bloomberg.com and check it out Shri, thank you so much Shri natarajan finance reporter at bloomberg news joining us on the phone from new york city and that's really that important point that he's saying come on i want people back at work and yet he has the luxury to kind of jet off to different places. Yeah, it's a great point. I want people back at work, too. Yeah, I know. Well, they're slowly coming back, yeah, slowly, are. slowly. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Let's get into our next guest because, listen, we keep a watch on Bitcoin every day. It did drop back a little bit today uh, after scaling a fresh record on bets that some of the pandemic relief payments in the U.S. will end up chasing uh, the digital tokens uh, towering rally. We've been writing about that uh, and uh, also writing about Bitcoin in his weekly column. He tackles maybe how central banks get into uh, the cryptocurrencies. Let's bring in Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown. He's with us on the phone in New York City. Andy, good to have you here with us. I feel like Bitcoin is one of those things as we continue to watch it take out level after level, there's either people who are all in on it or people who don't like it at all. Yeah, well, uh, you know, just looking into the whole issue of, of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, it, it, it strikes you how how shockingly retrograde this whole thing is, right? I mean, you know, you start you start with the environment. I know this is, this is a terribly unpopular thing to say with Bitcoin enthusiasts who will argue against it. But the truth of the matter is that Bitcoin, in producing Bitcoin, requires massive amounts of computing power. And according to the analysts, analysts that recently such as at Cambridge University, equal it equals the, the, the carbon emissions equal to the uh, equal to the entire output of Argentina. Okay, wow. so it's terrible for the terrible for the environment. In terms of a medium of exchange, it's really super inefficient. Now there are layers that are being built on top of the of, of Bitcoin, but right now you can do about four or five or six transactions every second versus literally thousands that are done by Visa and MasterCard. So it's clunky. Janet Yellen was just the other day saying this is extremely inefficient. And then as a store of value, I mean, this time last year it was trading at something like less than ten thousand. Now it's mm-hmm. it's up as you as, as you as you say now hitting hitting new new records. So, you know, in terms of, of what it is, 
and, and of course, nobody actually actually knows what 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 value it represents beyond scarcity, right? So, right. I mean, basically, it's a string of it's a string of software code. Uh, and, and there's this artificial scarcity because only 21 million Bitcoin will ever be produced or mined, as, as, as they say. Uh, and yet it actually does represent right now this, this a, a very fundamental threat uh, to central banks. Um, and central banks are really scrambling to come up with a response to this thing. Um, and it does seem as though China is at the forefront of the response to this challenge by coming up with a central bank-issued digital currency. And again, you know, this is something that banks are now looking at. They, they, they didn't want any part of cryptocurrencies, but they're being forced to respond. Janet Yellen the other day said, well, yeah, actually, you know, uh, um, maybe a digital dollar would be a good idea. Maybe it would facilitate payments and so on. Um, you know, and, and, and kind of the, the thought is that the real irony here is that, you know, the, the, um, the people who invented Bitcoin, uh, this, this was very much a libertarian experiment, a radical experiment in peer-to-peer money. You, you, you took out the middle person, right? The, the mm-hmm. banks, the monetary authorities. What would, you know, the unintended consequences of this may be that they have, uh, that they're going to spur the creation of these ultimate top-down currencies issued by monetary authorities, central banks, um, all over the world. And actually, you know, that may not be such a terrible thing uh, to the extent that, you know, you could really blur the lines between monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, in China, they're talking about, you know, using using uh, central bank issued currency, for instance, to, you know, issue cash, helicopter money to, uh, uh, right. to businesses, right, to individuals, right, unlimited QE for the for, for the for the for, for the masses, um, you know, and and uh, it's 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 just something that they're actively considering. This isn't this isn't some kind of wild theory. This right. is a practical application that they're talking about in China right well, now. It's, and it's fascinating, like you mentioned, Janet Yellen, the 180 that she's done. But you do talk about China. And listen, since we have you, we've got to ask you about all of the headlines, the flurry of headlines, including one this morning uh, coming out of China uh, about the Chinese government asking Alibaba to sell media assets. You know, we are seeing increasingly, Andy, this campaign to curb the influence of China's technology moguls. Um, we continue to see that expand. What's the end game and what's what does this ultimately mean in terms of especially China's plan to be operating on a more sophisticated kind of industrialized scale? Yeah, you know, look, I, I think you can look at this in, in, in two ways. I mean, one way is clearly they've launched, they're launching the mother of all antitrust investigations now into, uh, into Alibaba. Uh, it, it looks as though this is now going to spread from Alibaba to Tencent. And so you could say that, you know, as they're going through Alibaba's businesses, trying to figure out ways where it is abusing its monopoly or perceived to be abusing its monopoly. Now they're taking a look at the whole issue of media and so according to the Wall Street Journal Alibaba is, is may have to divest its media assets you know the other way I look at this is you know from a from a political perspective I would say this is deeply negative and deeply troubling for Jack Ma hmm. because in China 
you know, media is, of course, they're saying, oh, you know, this, we're, we're in media, not because we want to control the message, you know, not because we want to, we, 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 we want to have political influence. This is all about leveraging technology to help media companies. That's not the way regulators look at it at all. As far as they're concerned, media is politics. Media is propaganda. Propaganda is shaping public opinion. And as far as the party is concerned in China, that is a plank, a central plank of the way it holds power and, 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 and perpetuates its rule. This is deeply now uh, a, a, a deeply political turn that the antitrust investigation against uh, Alibaba has, has, ta- has, has, has taken yeah, listen, and it just feels like almost every morning or every day or every week that there's another headline against one of the major uh, Chinese players. Um, Andy, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown with us on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left in the Monday trading session, the Ides of March. Oh, it's happening. <laughs> it's happening. Hey, let's bring in JJ Kinnan. He's Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade, uh, joining us once again on the phone from Chicago. Are you spooked at all? Hey, Carol. Hi. Uh, am I spooked? No, not at all. Well, <laughs> well, that's good to know. hear. <laughs> We're yeah, seeing the Ides of March, you know, a little, yeah. little nervousness here. Well, it is funny, though, isn't it? You know, as we set new records on Friday, if I were reading the, uh, you know, press over the weekend, not knowing what happened, I would think that we were in the middle of a terrible, terrible stock market right now. Wasn't it crazy? It really is amazing how many people are just waiting for the fall, so to speak, as we continue to rally. Well, are they right to feel that way? And here I am looking at the last few minutes of trading today, and we're seeing another leg up on the major equity sourcing buying into the close here. Um, but are investors, are individuals right to be a little nervous? Maybe it's not even a this, this year story. Maybe it's a next year story. Well, I, I think, you know, you bring up a great point. Part of it should depend on your time frame uh, quite a bit. But I do think that a healthy, uh, a healthy pessimism is always a good thing when you are investing. There's no question about that. But, you know, it, you, you can't stop it. From, you, can't, you can't let that stop you from investing in quality uh, names that uh, are doing well. And, you know, as we talk right now, we're seeing bonds uh, rally quite a bit as the uh, S&Ps rally quite a bit. I think the, the thing that maybe people should be concerned about at, at the moment is that the relationships are still a little bit askew. And I would expect that to continue. And I would expect actually volatility to continue for at least till the end of the month and certainly this week as we have quadruple witching expiration on friday and so it'll be interesting for me to see how many people are sort of rolling positions forward or are people going to have the same enthusiasm for the summertime as they've had for the uh you know first quarter of the year 
Well, speaking of enthusiasm, our colleague David Weston spoke with Bank of America's CEO, Brian Moynihan, earlier today. And, and one thing that struck me from part of that interview that we played right here on Bloomberg Radio is when he talked about consumer spending and credit card use and the way they were rebounding really strongly, seeing significant shifts after people get vaccinated. And April data will probably show, quote, massive growth compared with, with 2020. What kind of preview does that give you for what things look like on the other side here? And what is that? And how much of that well, is priced in already in stocks, right? How much of that optimism is already priced in? Well, I, I think, Tim, that's really going to be the question that we hit, in my opinion, out a couple of months. And the reason I say that is at the same time that you're talking about that, you're also getting checks going in the mail this right. week. So people get excited about that. But where I think the real test comes is, you know, I believe it's right after May 1st. We're also, you know, every adult's supposed to get vaccinated. So let's say we come to June. What happens then when people who have been at home for close to 18 months in many cases, we'll call it between 12 and 18. Uh, productivity, you know, as they say, has never been higher. Creativity never been lower because people have been working so much, but not in groups. And everybody has much of vacation time saved up. What I'm worried about, to be honest with you, is third quarter GDP, hmm. because you may come to the situation where so many people say, I'm going outside. I don't care. I, I just want to enjoy life for a little while because I haven't really done that. And I know, I mean, I say it kind of smirking, but I do think it's a real threat to things uh, for a quarter well, because I, I really feel like and you live in New York. I live in Chicago. We know how precious, nice weather is. And I, I think that that's a risk to the economy. But, but maybe that would manifest in other consumer spending, right? If we think about it from the perspective yeah. of the way that we hit up hospitality, right, yeah. travel and leisure. Like, that could be a boon then. That could be a boon. I, I, I believe you're absolutely right. And actually, theoretically, I think it could be a boon for the energy market, hmm. to, 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 to be uh, quite honest also. But that also has longer-term effects. And so I think that if you see GDP start to come down, even if it's just for a quarter, then it's, okay, how do we recover from that? Because hopefully we don't need any more stimulus after this one. Etc. And if it, that's at the same time as we start to see some tax proposals, that's the only thing that actually concerns me longer term. Yeah, but we seem to somehow manage our, I don't know, no offense, but I feel like companies figure out a way in terms of their effective tax rate to actually, despite a, you know, actual tax rate that they're supposed to pay, they ultimately pay a lot less, JJ. So it's not so onerous on the corporate community, bottom line. No, no, that's true, Carol, but I just mean spending in general, et cetera. Again, I think it's great when, you know, people have this optimism, and there, there's incredible optimism right now, and, and love to see it. And like I said, even though, you know, reading a lot of the reports of the market, you wouldn't know there's an incredible optimism, but days like today make me believe there is. I, I guess what I'm really saying is I think anybody who believes sort of this shorter-term volatility is going away is probably a little bit, kidding themselves because uh, there there are things to worry about in the shorter term. But as we look for the rest, certainly for the rest of next quarter, I just feel like we have a lot of momentum. We have checks hitting. We have people anxious to spend money. It's the second half of the year that, that I start to wonder about a little bit. And can we continue with this great optimism through? All right. So having said that, then, how do you position a portfolio at this point? What's your take? Well, I think, you know, financials has, have been a great uh, contributor to the uh, 
market so far this year have to be the area, you know, they they fought for so many years, the headwinds, and they were like a great boxer that wouldn't go down and kept getting punched in the face. And now with, with the way they've managed their business, the ability to collect funds, and now they actually have true banking functions, hopefully back and, and a little bit of a spread, even though, again, I, I know I'm talking about a 10-year rate at just over 1.6 as if it's unbelievable. But right. let, let's face it, in, in, in perspective of historical, it's nothing but the trends in the right direction for them. And I think, Tim, you hit on something important a few minutes ago, and that is the hospitality industry. You know, small businesses all the way through these stocks and air, air, airlines. So I do think they have a great opportunity. The only thing that I think puts a little bit of a crimp in there, and, and I, I don't know it'll slow it down in the short term, is actually if crude oil prices continue up above 70. As we speak right now, you know, West Texas is 65.38. But we, uh, if we get above 70, I think that puts a little bit of expense perhaps back on airlines, et cetera. JJ, in five seconds, is there a 10-year yield number that scares you? Uh, 2%. All right. Well, there it is. All right. We're watching. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.